0: If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's also there in your worship guide. Uh, Last Sunday, we began our sermon series on Ecclesiastes. And if you remember, I lit a candle here and I blew it out, and we got to see the smoke rise. Um, Do you see any trace of that smoke here this morning? It's gone. Uh, and not a single trace of it remains, and the reason it's not here anymore is because it's hevel. Last week, Solomon introduced us to that term, that word hevel, which means a puff of smoke, meaningless, something that's only here for a moment, and then it's gone, something when you try to grasp it, you can't get a handle on it. It's hevel, and he says that all of our lives are hevel. And I heard a lot of feedback from last week's sermon. I heard we had great home group discussions going on, which makes me really happy. I also heard back from a few people saying that they decided that they would no longer do laundry, that they would no longer load the dishwasher, they would no longer mow their lawn. Why, honey? It's all Hevel, you know, and uh, that's not the point of it, but at least you were kind of listening. How did Solomon come to the conclusion that all of life is Hevel? Well, he used all of his money, all of his power, all of his wealth to do an experiment. To do an experiment that led him to the conclusion that all of life is Hevel. And we are going to be looking at that experiment this morning. Uh, and so if you would read with me, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 16. We're going to read through 18. Now we going to do like we did last week. We're going to read a little, talk about it a little. We'll go work our way through a lot of chapter 2 as well. So, verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom, and to no madness and folly. And I perceive that this is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And pray with me. Father, I pray that through your word and through your spirit, you would begin to do new work in us. You'd give us the ability to get off the the treadmill of life and actually have a real life in which you are doing something new. Jesus, I pray that your call to us would be irresistible, that we would come to you for rest and for refreshment. So Jesus, I pray that in this time my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So it's only fitting that Solomon would begin his sermon uh, his, his quest, I mean, for the meaning of life by talking about wisdom. Uh, but it, notice, almost immediately, he goes ahead and he gives us the conclusion that with much wisdom there, there is vexation. Wisdom only brings vexation, a word you don't even have to look in your dictionary to know what it means. Frustration, angst. In other words, after listening to all of those podcasts, After uh, reading all of those New Yorker journal entries and articles, all the scholarly books he poured over, his sorrows only increased. The wiser he got, the more sorrow it brought. He he proved the saying that, that we know, ignorance is bliss. And you might be wondering, how in the world can Solomon say this? After all, he wrote the Proverbs, which are all about wisdom. And yes, he did write all about wisdom in the Proverbs. And if you read through Proverbs, one of the things he says is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But notice he does not mention the fear of the Lord here. The Lord's not going to be mentioned anywhere here as he talks about this type of wisdom. And so what I believe that Solomon is describing here is a worldly wisdom, Not a godly wisdom. This is a wisdom that does not take God into the equation. And the reason that a worldly wisdom only brings sorrow is because all worldly wisdom can do is bring clarity to the problem. But it is powerless to offer us any solution. Worldly wisdom is like looking through a microscope. And when you look through it, you can see that your cells have some incurable disease but you're powerless to bring healing. Worldly wisdom has its limits, and I believe that that's the wisdom that Solomon's going to talk about and use here. And he's going to use this wisdom to do a little experiment for us. It's actually not little. It's going to be a pretty huge, great experiment. In chapter 2, Solomon says he's going to pull together all of his wisdom, all his power, all of his resources and wealth to pursue pleasure with everything he has and see if he can find any meaning there. That's the experiment. Look at verses 1 through 3. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was Hevel. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, for most of us, uh, there was a time that we begged God, pleaded with him, prayed to him to give us the things That we now have and take for granted. Uh, Perhaps it was the job that we have or the salary we now have or the neighborhood we now live in or the spouse we have or children or maybe the vacation we just took. But likely there was a time, maybe it was five years ago, 10 years ago that you pleaded with God. God, would you just give me these things? And he did. Are you satisfied? Is your soul content? Or do you think you need more of what God has already given you? Are you already thinking of a new five year or another 10 year plan? You have new goals you need to achieve and get to in order to bring some happiness. The the problem for us is we always think happiness comes when we just get a little bit more, just a little more of what God's already given us. So, what Solomon is going to do here in this experiment is he is going to uh, acquire way, way more than you could ever acquire. And he's going to do way, way more than you could ever achieve. And he's going to see where this leads. In the end, would it lead to happiness? And so he goes all in in this experiment. And by going all in, I mean he goes all in. Uh, the more I've thought about this, the more I've realized that what Solomon is actually trying to do here is to recreate the Garden of Eden itself. He's trying to replicate paradise, trying to create a paradise in which there is bounty, there is fruit. There's a world of running around naked and unashamed. But this time, there will be no forbidden fruits. This time, there's going to be no restrictions. This time, he will get to do whatever he desires. And so, what you're going to notice is the pronoun I is going to be used over 40 times in this chapter. He will only follow his own desires, but he's, he's recreating the garden here, but with no forbidden fruits. Now, to get things started, Solomon's going to begin throwing the most epic parties that have ever been thrown in the world's history. Parties that make the great Gatsby's party look like a little backyard barbecue. We know this because when we read through 1 Kings chapter 4, we read what Solomon had to do, the amount of food they used just for these parties on a daily basis. We read this in 1 Kings 4, that Solomon's provision for just one day was 30 cores of fine flour, that's 6,500 liters, and 60 cores of meal. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks. I don't even know what roebucks are. They sound tasty. Uh, And fattened fowl. So uh, most scholars, they say this would have been enough to feed fifteen to 20,000 people each day. Every day. Fifteen to 20,000 people feasting. Uh, So one of the best days of the year is what's known as Best Worst Fest. I mean, there's Easter, and just under that, there's Best Worst Fest for our church. And and if you know, that's when we we rent out Avondale Brewery. We go there, and we just grill out a ton of sausage and eat it. I mean, let's not overcomplicate things. That's all that you need. And, And this past year, we grilled out... 400 pounds of sausage. This is the best. the best evening ever. Solomon looks at that 400 pounds of sausage and goes, please. Please. <laughs> that's, that's like the appetizer for our appetizers. That's, that's nothing. I mean, at these feasts, it would be the very best that money can buy. Caviar, champagne just spilling over the tables. He said that he gave himself over to laughter. He would, he would bring in, you know, the best comedians. We we'd try to amuse ourselves by listening to, you know, or watching some TikTok videos, maybe some YouTube. Uh, he's there, you know, bringing in Jim Gaffigan, Dave Chappelle. I mean, he has them talking in between hors d'oeuvres. No expense spared. And these parties happen night after night after night. But all the while during this, I love this line. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me in wisdom. He, he thinks he's still. Wisdom is guiding. Me. He never forgets why he's doing this. Uh, but he, he searched with, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me in wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly. Uh, in other words, he did some really highbrow partying. And he did some really lowbrow partying just to get the full experience. There's times he brought out the tucks, you know, brought out the, uh, the $10,000 bottle wines, maybe the, the 20, 25 year old scotches, and he brought them out, put them by the ice sculptures, had the orchestra set up playing while people were waltzing around. Uh, maybe for entertainment, you know, they would do a little horse racing, maybe some yacht racing. I'm not really sure what the ultra-rich do, but uh, this very highbrow kind of partying here. And then there was times he went really lowbrow. He, uh, he took off the tux and he put on the t-shirt tux. Uh, and, and then he gets out the lawn chair, to which he puts in, in the above-ground pool that he sits down, he opens up his core's Light, and he's watching some NASCAR while listening to Kid Rock with a few thousands of his best friends. He's doing it all. Night after night, over and over, partying. Uh, we, we don't know how long he did this. It was for a while. I mean, think of it this way. He, we'll find out later he marries 700 women. If he gets, does two weddings per week, that's seven years, nonstop of weddings. Somehow, so you have all your wedding feasts, which are huge parties, and then he fit in other parties in between. I mean, I don't know how he did it. But this is for some ex- extended time, he is partying. And then at the end of the day, he says it's all Hevel. It's meaningless. Vanity. Puff of smoke. Hevel. Hevel. I'm sure after the first night of that epic party, he just thought, man, I couldn't get any better than this. He was actually right. It'd go downhill from there. I mean, that first party, you know, there was uh, the thing with the horse and the pool and the trampoline. He could barely remember it. It's like, wow, but it was epic. I I got to somehow top that. And so maybe he brings in a few more celebrities, a few more, you know, high-priced bottles of wine, But it's not quite as fun. The sequels never are. I mean, we see this in movies all the time in which we think when we do a sequel, we just have to add more. And that makes it better. You know, get bigger dinosaurs, more dinosaurs, more aliens, whatever it is. They'll make the movie better. But it's never quite as good as the original. And and so he's doing this, bringing in more and more things. And the parties are still good, but they're beginning to wane. Years of this. Finally, I bet he cannot even look at another bite of caviar. He just wants it off. He just wants off this treadmill, which is what the parties have become. Now, in doing all this, he says his wisdom's still guiding him. He's not once forgotten why he's doing this experiment. Will this pursuit of pleasure satisfy? Well, well so far, no. So, Solomon, what he decides he needs to do is to quit the party scene. And he needs to grow up a bit. He needs to, you know, get a job. Move out of the frat house and into an actual house. Be productive with his life. And so we read in verses 4 through 6 this. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees now we know from first kings that solomon took 7 years for him to build the temple but it took him 13 years to build his house it was quite a house and i won't bore you with all of the details about the house let's just say it's nicer than yours Nicer than yours you could even dream about. Uh, so he builds this incredible house. But notice, it doesn't just say house singular. He built houses. Remember the 700 wives? We read in 1 Kings that he built each of them a house. So he's got, he's got hundreds of houses now. So he's not just building a house. He's building subdivisions. Huge gated Wealthy subdivisions. And then after building these houses, he decides he needs to plant vineyards. Because apparently he wants to drink his own brand of wine. And then he moves on to doing a little landscaping. And by landscaping, I mean that he built huge gardens and national parks. I mean, Lorna <laughs> and I, we, uh, this past week, we planted our vegetable garden. We have four tomato plants there. Solomon would come by and be like, I like what you did with it. I mean, the little cages are nice. Have you seen my national park? He built a national park. We just planted a little rose bush. He planted a forest. Verse 6 says, it mentions that he built special pools to water these forests. And do you know that if you go to Israel, you can actually see these pools. They're there to this day. There's three of them. Uh, they, actually, they collectively hold 160,000 cubic meters of water, which means absolutely nothing to you because you don't know the metric system. <laughs> it's 43 million gallons. The man planted entire forests. Once again, all Solomon is doing is he's, he's taking the dreams that you have in which you just think, if I could just have a little bit more, if I could just have a little bit, you know, if Lauren and I were thinking, if we could just have a little bit more land, maybe just plant a few more tomato plants, all we need is just a little bit more. And Solomon's going, I've gone to the end of that road. I did national parks. I planted forest. He's gone so far beyond where I could even dream about he says it's hevel, hevel. I want you to notice the progression here. At least it seems like a progression to me. As he's describing these different things that we pursue, it seems to be it seems to look like he's describing the things we pursue as we naturally get older. You know, first it's being young, partying, then it's Moving into a house, getting a job, working hard to build beautiful things. And now what we see him do is move on to retirement, where he can sit back and he can enjoy the rewards of his labor. Verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So after finishing his house and his garden and his parks, he decides. He needs to retire and to enjoy these labors. And so he fills his house with servants, even as servants have servants. And what this means is he no longer has to even lift a finger to get what he wanted. I mean, he probably woke up to breakfast in bed in which there would be freshly squeezed orange juice from the oranges that were grown in his very own orchard. Uh, then he'd probably get out of bed to move to his very first massage that day. Perhaps a round of golf in where you know he would drive around in the royal golf chariot from hole to hole. Once he gets back to cool himself off, he'd get in the pool. Probably get out of the pool and he 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 wouldn't even dry himself off. All he have to do is just like kind of do this. And servants, you know, were there just drying him off, maybe taking him to his next massage. And then he'd go shopping. And he'd buy whatever he wanted. Anything he remotely wanted, he could buy. His closets had closets. His garages had garages. Whatever he wanted, he bought. And then for entertainment in the evenings, we, we read that he'd bring in singers. I love that. I mean, we listen to Spotify. This man he he brought in his favorite artists. You know he's bringing in Jay Z. He's bringing in Taylor Swift. You know just singing by the pool, spared no expense. Then finally we read that he got many concubines. And of course this is what Solomon is known for. He had seven hundred wives, and then he had a harem of three hundred concubines. I mean, he would have looked at Hugh Hefner, and he would have yawned. Really? That's it? Uh, In 1 Kings, we read that he loved marrying women of all different ethnicities. Meaning he he wanted to marry women of every skin color, every shape, and every size. In other words, hear, hear this, men. Every sexual fantasy that Solomon had, he fulfilled. Everything his eye wanted and desired, he got. 1,000 women there for his pleasure. Verse 9 So I became great. I bet you did after throwing all those parties. Everyone's your friend. And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Now, remember, like, this cannot be godly wisdom. I cannot think of having 700 wives as being godly wisdom. I think he's talking about worldly wisdom here. But he never forgot what he was doing and why he was doing it. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Once again, Solomon was trying to recreate the Garden of Eden with no restrictions, no forbidden fruit. And what did he learn from this experiment? Well, his conclusion is a little controversial. Uh, it's certainly unPresbyterian, certainly un-Lutheran, because he said it was a lot of fun. He said, you know, uh, gosh, you know, all the drinking, the partying, the materialism, the sex—it brought pleasure. It was fun. I mean, it almost sounds unChristian, doesn't it? I mean, I grew up in a youth group. You know, we go to the mall. You know, we'd hand out tracts. You know, on a Friday night. And usually in the parking lot, there would be the other youth from the high school I went to all gathered around partying and drinking, laughing. And our youth minister would say things like, you know, only looks like they're having fun. They're really not having fun. What you're doing is fun. Like, it sure looks like they're having fun. I mean, come on, they're, they're having fun. Solomon says it was there was enjoyable moments It it brought a lot of pleasure. I remember listening to an interview with Johnny Cash after he had become a believer, after he had given up uh, the booze, the women, the drugs, and he was talked about living his new lifestyle, and this person interviewing him asked him if there was anything he missed. And he gets kind of this far-off look in his eye. He goes, man, I miss the drugs. It's like, what? (laughs) What? Man, I it. Like, are you allowed to say that as a believer? He's like, there were some really enjoyable moments there. Drugs brought him some form of pleasure. So Christians, let's not be so foolish as to say that those things are not any fun. I mean, the world already thinks we're killjoys. It's why if ever I'm going to a party where I don't know people, I try my best to never let anyone know I'm a pastor. Uh, and, you know, so they're always asking, hey, so what do you do for a living? Work with people? (laughs) Yeah, like, like, how? What do you work? I I teach? Where do you teach? I'm a pastor at Redeemer Community. It's like, the music stops. (laughs) All eyes look. Party comes crashing down. Because that's how the world thinks of Christians. We're out. We're killjoys. Not at all. We just know that that can't be all there is. It's got to be more than that. Yeah, Solomon had fun. He had moments of fun, but it's not the final word. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was hevel, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon says, yeah, I had some pleasurable moments. And then they kept decreasing and decreasing and decreasing until finally it became misery. Which is why he would then abort it and then he would go on to something else. And then it would, the pleasure would decrease and decrease and decrease and then he would abort it and he'd go on to something else. And he kept going to the next thing, and to the next thing, and to the next thing. And now that he's coming to the end of his life, he realizes all of his toil and energy, he never got off the treadmill. All along, he spent his whole life on a stinking treadmill, going nowhere, profiting nothing, still unsatisfied, all a life is Hevel. Now, why didn't this little Garden of Eden he created... Why didn't it satisfy? Well, because yes, I mean, he, he, he got everything he wanted with no restrictions. But here was the thing. God wasn't there. That's the difference. There was no, like Adam did, there was no walks with God in the cool of the evening. And what Solomon finally realized here is that a paradise without fellowship with God is actually hell. It's not heaven. It's hell. It's an eternal thirst without ever being able to satisfy it. It's being able to get whatever you want, and you keep consuming and consuming and consuming, thinking it's going to finally quench this thirst, but it never does. Hell is being able to get whatever you want until you no longer want it, but you can't imagine your life without it. That's hell. Being able to get whatever you want until you no longer want it, but you can't imagine your life without it. Hell. Hell closely resembles the American dream. John John Piper famously said that God's greatest adversary is his own gifts. God's greatest adversary is his own gifts. The arch enemy of God is when we take the things that God has given us to enjoy. Gifts like food and drink and art and sex and entertainment and money. And we take those things and we turn them into ultimate things. Things we believe we must have in order for our happiness And when we begin to look at the the gifts instead of looking at the giver, we are forever on the treadmill. We never get off. After Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl, he was being interviewed. uh, And in the interview, I'll just quote. He says, hey, I know I have three rings and everybody's telling me this is it. But there has got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be. This can't be what all it's cracked up to be, can it? The interviewer then asked him, Well, what's the answer? And all Tom Brady could say is, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Three more championships and a divorce later, he's still asking the same question, still doesn't know the answer. Do you know the answer? Do you? If Solomon in all of his wisdom couldn't give us that satisfaction, couldn't give us the meaning of life here, who can? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the wisest people of his day, and he says these words. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said that he was greater than Solomon, who was the wisest and the wealthiest person on earth. How could Jesus claim to be greater than Solomon? I mean, those who heard him, they had to be thinking, "You're, you're crazy. How could you be greater than him? I mean, Solomon was born in a palace. You were born in a stable. Solomon had servants to meet his every need. You don't have anyone. Solomon, he had his kingly garments. Look at what you're wearing. It's just a little peasant's robe. Solomon had great armies that followed him. You've got, look at those little stragglers there you call disciples. Solomon lived in mansions. You don't even have a place to lay your head. Solomon had thousands of horses and chariots rode around in splendor. You just walk around to little village to little village. How could you, Jesus, possibly claim to be greater than Solomon? And the answer is this. Solomon could never quench his own thirst, let alone anyone else's. Yet Jesus, over and over again, would tell people, come to me and be satisfied. Come to me and drink water that will truly quench the thirst of your soul. No one else spoke like that. We saw Jesus do that with a woman at the well. We all remember that story in John chapter 4. He he asked that woman, like, why do you come here day after day and keep pulling water up and drinking it? You know that water, every time you drink it, you're still thirsty, aren't you? I can give you water in which you will never thirst again. Jesus might as well have been talking to Solomon. Solomon why do you keep going to the wells? Why do you keep thinking if you go in here if you get a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more it's going to satisfy? It won't come to me if you're thirsty. I'll end this message simply by asking are you going to Jesus to quench your thirst or are you still on the treadmill? thinking if I just get a little bit more, just get a little bit more, just get a little bit more, I'll finally be satisfied. Go to Jesus. I mean, this week, go to him in prayer. This week, go to him by listening to him through his word. If you don't even know where to start, just open up your Bible, go to the Gospel of John, and just slowly, prayerfully, meditatively begin reading through it. Go to your home group, Be honest, be vulnerable, and be thankful. Uh, When you're thankful, it takes the focus off of the gifts and it redirects your attention to the giver. Uh, Yesterday morning when I went, um, my morning quiet time, I went down to the front porch with my cup of coffee and I sat there. And I decided I would just thank God for the things on my front porch. And so I'm there, and I'm like, "Lord, thank you. Thank you for the, the sofa and for these chairs that we have that we bought at Sam's Club over 20 years ago. And they're still great. Thank you for the, the wooden rocking chair we have over there that I was able to buy from an old man in Georgia. Thank you for the cushions that we have, and, and for my wife who, who made those cushions that we could enjoy. Thank you for the rugs that we have that we found on the side of the road, and they look terrible, but they're kind of functional. And I just began thanking. And you know what? The more I thanked, the more I was satisfied. Because it wasn't the gifts. My gaze was redirected to the giver. And it was so much more joy when I I quit looking there, and I began looking there. It's like, God, you are so good to give me so many things like this. Most of all, though, God, you gave me the gift of Jesus. You give me the gift of your son, and through him I have forgiveness, and I have eternal life. And I began thanking God, my father, for his son, Jesus. Are you going to him to have your thirst quenched? Let's go to him now. Father God, thank you. Thank you. The things we could thank you for are endless. This week, would you give us a heart of thankfulness? To whether we're at home, whether we're driving down the road, we would begin to thank you for all the things you have given us. The things five, ten years ago we prayed for and now we take for granted. May we not take them for granted. And would you redirect our gaze to you, the giver of those gifts? Because those things are just things, but you satisfy the longing of our hearts. And may we go to you. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.